Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf, film critic for LA Weekly. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about a favorite genre movie of theirs, one that influenced their own work, possibly. Today, I'm very psyched to be speaking with writer, producer, podcast host, Emily Gordon. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for coming. I like just hearing that part. It may have influenced the work because I was like, yeah, I don't think, my, I don't know that my did necessarily, <laughs> but I'm still very excited about I, it. I still think that there's okay. some ways that we can relate it we're back gonna, to we're your gonna work. T- we'll talk ourselves into it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. I feel like I'm going to be in uh, English uh, uh, lit class. <laughs> In college, just really proving my point. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to tell you all a little bit about Emily, just in case you're unfamiliar. Um, The bio I'm about to give you for Emily might actually sound more than vaguely familiar, and that's because the hit indie film she co-wrote with her husband, Kumail Nanjiani, The Big Sick, heavily mines her personal life. For five years, Emily worked as a couples therapist before finding her current career as a writer. So since 2008, she's been working as a freelance writer with articles published everywhere. Uh, Daily Beast, Rookie, Lenny Letter, GQ, New York Times. And all of this culminated into her first published book, Super You, Release Your Inner Superhero, which is described as a, quote, fun, friendly, unabashedly geeky guide to becoming your own superhero in your extraordinary life. I didn't write that, but yes. (laughs) I was a jacket copywriter for a long time. so It's a very specific skill, right? It is. It is. It is. And I'm just like, oh, I read that. I know what this book is about. (laughs) It's great. Um, Here in Los Angeles, Emily was the program director for the Nerdist showroom at Meltdown Comics, where she also produced the show The Meltdown with Jonah and Kumail before she began work on The Big Sick. That film, starring Nanjiani, Zoe Kazan, Holly Hunter, Ray Romano, Adil Akhtar, and Anupam Kher, was and is one of the most critically acclaimed films of 2017. Uh, Listeners, I must be honest, when I saw this film in the theater, I wept a lot. (laughs) My husband had to keep handing me Kleenexes. I'm super happy. Um, But while Emily's projects are often lighthearted, even when her characters are navigating impossible situations, the film she chose today, this is a great one, is known for its relentless brutality, as well as its brilliant dialogue. Yes, Emily has chosen to talk about S. Craig Zoller's Bone Tomahawk. Bone Tomahawk! Sorry. Emily, <laughs> you have to tell me, when when you suggested this as a possibility for talking about it, that I jumped on it because <laughs> I didn't know who else was going to talk about it, but I feel like we need to talk about a Western that strays into horror and, and that kind or of thing. Or like a Western that strays into like a quiet indie character drama. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like it's, it's, uh, that, this movie absolutely blew me away, and it's a movie that stuck with me in a way that I wasn't, I didn't know that it was going to stick with me, yeah. but I there's so much I love about it. I don't love Westerns as a genre. It's not my it's not my jam. Yeah. Uh, I kind of feel like their values often don't reflect my own. But I loved um, I loved all of these characters. And I love that the movie takes so much time kind of hanging out with them before it introduces some of the most brutal shit. I can I can say shit, right? Oh, yeah. Some yeah. of the most brutal shit I have ever, ever seen on screen. So uh, I kind of am in love with it in a million different ways. Uh, I... I rewatched it very recently, <laughs> earlier today, to, to remember it. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's that movie. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, what an inventive and what an inventive thing to show. 
So <laughs> let me give you all a little background on this movie. Uh, for those who haven't seen Bone Tomahawk, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you want to pause and peep Bone Tomahawk first, please do so now. And hopefully you're back. <laughs> That's such a great point, by the way. Spoilers don't really bother me for similar reasons because I don't care what it is that happens. What's It's interesting, the journey of going from point to point. Uh, our movie specifically, I'm me doing press for it as a spoiler, but that's okay. Like, it shouldn't matter that you know. No. Yeah, that I survived the movie. And uh, honestly, the spoilers in this film, this, like, they made me want to watch it more. Because I was like, that's what happens? Yeah, exactly. How, and then also, how do they get there from, from what this. I'm watching right yes, now? exactly. Um, so let me give you guys the background here. Directed by S. Craig Zoller in 2015, Bone Tomahawk featured an all-star cast of Kurt Russell, Patrick Wilson, Matthew Fox, Richard Jenkins, Lily Simmons, David Arquette, and the legendary horror actor Sid Haig. This Western opens with two bandits getting attacked by a mysterious figure. Only one of them gets away and then shows up 11 days later in a small frontier town called Bright Hope. Seems like a nice enough place. (laughs) The local sheriff, Franklin Hunt, uh, played by Kurt Russell, he gets alerted that there's a new shifty fella in town. And so he heads to the saloon to check him out. And after a confrontation, the sheriff shoots the bandit in the leg. Since the local doctor is too drunk to extract the bullet and fix up the guy's leg, John Bruder, the local womanizer, has to collect the doctor's assistant, who happens to be a woman named Samantha, who he's a little bit sweet on. She's very sweet looking. She is. Yeah. Samantha's already caring for her husband, who broke his leg, uh, I might say, doing something she told him not to do. Um, But she dutifully heads to the jail to work on the bandit. Come morning, however, she, the bandit, and the deputy are all missing. A local native professor... At least that's what they call him, the professor, tells them the kidnappers are a a troglodyte clan of cave dwellers long ago sworn off by every other native tribe. So the sheriff, the backup deputy, the womanizer and Samantha's husband then set out on a long trip to the caves to rescue their loved ones. They have no idea where they're going, where they're headed to and what kind of things are going to await them. But it's an arduous journey. And once they reach the caves, the horrors that they find are seriously beyond their wildest imaginations and mine. They are up against brutal, merciless cannibals. Yep. Wow. That sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> I really hope that people who turned turn this off to watch uh, Bone Tomahawk did come back oh, yeah. <laughs> to discuss it. Yeah, you're going to want to talk to someone about this movie, I think. So talk to us. Yes, as a, as a former therapist, I mean... <laughs> Can you can you walk people through this film, right? Oh, no. Um, so, I mean, again, how do we even begin to define what this movie is? Yes, it's a Western, but it also has all these elements of humor and extreme graphic violence. Um, Kurt Russell said, quote, We were kidding about it. Somebody was talking about it today and were kidding about the fact that if you went to a video store back in the day, they had all these different sections, all these different movies and all these different sections that by the time you got over to, and he laughs, there'd be a section with a question mark and an exclamation point, And under that would be one movie, Bone Tomahawk. <laughs> yeah, that seems, I mean, if I, if I were working at an action video, which yes. was my local video store in the 80s, I think I would put this under horror more than Western. Okay. 
But I don't think we had an indie movie section, and I think that's that's the thing. To me, indie movies, as of late, have come to be a catch-all term for a movie that kind of defies genre. Yes. Um, I picked this as a genre movie because of the unspeakable violence that happens at the end of it and how it's so brutal. That's kind of why it landed in that camp for me. But this is a Western. This is like a character drama. This is a bunch of things, and I kind of am getting a little sometimes tired of movies that are when they're like, when you say comedy, that means uh, a ton of really big, huge set pieces. By the way, I love these movies, too. A ton of huge set pieces, some dick jokes. That's a comedy. Yeah. Like, we, it's so prescribed what movies mean now that I like a movie that kind of crosses genres and is a bunch of things at once. Well, I have to say, I mean, if we're talking about The Big Sick, I do find that, you know, there's humor in it, right? But it's also a pretty deep drama. Yeah. Um, and I'm really, I mean, my, my editor over um, at Village Voice, he constantly is just like, we're not calling things dramedies anymore. Like, I'm, I'm down with that. And, and I'm like, yes, but but also, you know, how do we find a new way to, to talk about them? Yeah. it's And I think about like a movie like In Bruges. It's when you I saw the trailer for that. and I was like, eh, that might be OK. That is an amazing movie. Yeah. And yet I can't tell you necessarily what genre a movie that goes into a movie like broadcast news like that can kind of go into a couple different genres. Our movie specifically, we always thought of it as a funny family drama. OK, that's how to, like if we were to put it in a genre. And when we started working on marketing stuff for the movie and like making promos, we were like, oh, people are going to think of this as a rom-com. Never, and I keep seeing stuff of like, it's a rom-com, it's a rom-com. We never thought of it as being a rom-com. Mm. Even though we talked about rom-coms a lot in the making of it, um, to me it just like encompassed the fact that families are involved and illness, it had so much stuff in it. So I was like, no, there's no way it's a rom-com. So it's, it's interesting. I think those uh, categories help viewers a lot, yeah. and they've helped me specifically, sure. Um, but I do think I like a movie that kind of doesn't, kind of picks from a couple of different genres and puts them all together. I always think that's more fun. And if there's a question mark section in my video store, that's that's where I would have wanted to be at all points in time. Yes, I know. <laughs> yeah. I, I believe that um, Vidiots used to have one of those. The, the late, great Vidiots, who's hopefully coming back. But um, there, I mean, I guess we'll call it a Western. Uh, Kurt Russell in his interviews was just like, do not call this a horror Western. Do you know? You know like, really? Like, oh, OK. Well, I mean, have you seen the end of the film? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you were there for it. Uh, <laughs> you watched the thing. I just love, and I, the first time the blade hits the man's crotch, the poor deputy, which, by the way, he might as well have been wearing whatever the the color spacesuit is for Star Trek that the one guy always wears who's going to get suit. murdered. Yeah, the red suit. Oh, my God. He might as well have been wearing that because I was like, he was like, my family, it's cold where I grew up. And I was like, oh, you might die. <laughs> yeah. This is going to be a problem. Like the first time the blade hits, you see what looks like uh, like fecal something kind of pouring yeah, out. Yeah, and we should we should back up just to remind people in case you in case there was any question about what you what we were talking about is that in the end of this film, <clears throat> there is a a brutal bisection of a live human being who's just been scalped. Scalped. His scalp is stuffed into his mouth and then hammered in. Yeah. Then he is turned upside down. Yeah. While Kurt Russell is yelling at him, we'll avenge you. Yes. Uh, and then... Which, while, thanks, you know. Yeah, great. Okay. I'm not going to be around for that. Yeah. Legs are spread upside down. Bam. Just taking it down like you're chopping a tree. Yep. Oh, God. Wow. Yeah, it's an intense scene. And it looks amazing. It looks realistic in that it's not super gory. 
but it's also very, very gory. Like it could, they could have gone way bigger with it, and I would have been like, "Oh, that's campy." It's not campy at all. Well, yeah. Well, one of the <clears throat> reasons why I think it's not campy is the the point of view that we have of the for the camera where we're placed. We are placed, I believe, um, like behind Kurt Russell's yes. head. Mm-hmm. He's like in a little prison watching. So we we have um we have his vision as opposed to you know like a, a more like lurid up close yeah. kind of thing, and it's. It's almost more horrifying in that way because we just watch it happen and there's no way to stop it. Yeah. You, know, you see, like, the prison bars in front of you, too, and yeah. there's there's no way to stop this. That's right. That this is happening. Terrifying. And I noticed Richard Jenkins' character, what's his name? It's, like, Chicory? Chicory. Yeah, Chicory. He turns away, whereas Kurt Russell keeps... Uh, keeps an eye. I think... I was like, what would I do in that situation? Yeah, I think I would turn away. I think I would have to. In reality, I don't think I could watch that happen. I might watch it. Yeah? Yeah. Because I, mean, I would be that person who's just like, I'll avenge you. <laughs> just screaming into the heavens. I would. Oh, God. <laughs> and it's so interesting, too, that this movie works so hard to make sure that these aren't native savages, quote unquote. Yes. Like, these are different things than Native Americans. Because I And I don't watch a lot of Westerns, but that's apparently was a huge theme, was always like the savage Native Americans who are like going to come and yeah. I like that. Uh, I like that there's a Native American actor who's like, yeah, actually, these guys are completely, they're not us. I promise you, they have nothing to do with us. They're troglodytes. You're afraid of your own kind? They're not my kind. They're a spoiled bloodline of inbred animals that rape and eat their own mothers. Well, what are they? Troglodytes. What do they look like? Men like you would not distinguish them from Indians, even though they're something else entirely. It's maybe my favorite line in the movie. Someone says, how do you spell troglodytes? Yeah. When they told him to like send a memo. Yes. I know that's so, so many little tiny moments of like just the weirdest little humor. Um, yeah. So I like that they are, these are inhuman creatures. Yes. Um, which is convenient both and also very scary. And let's take a quick break. You're listening to Switchblade Sisters. In celeb news this week, the hosts of Lady to Lady took a break from hanging with today's hottest comedians, actors, and writers to sell a sex machine. What'd they do with all that cash? Rent a party bus to go to Magic Mike Live in Vegas, of course. All of this on the heels of a salacious sizzler session with Home Alone 4 star French Stewart. Want to know what the f*** we're talking about? Tune into Lady to Lady whenever, wherever you listen to podcasts. Can you keep a secret? Neither can we. Welcome back. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here talking to writer-producer Emily Gordon about the 2015 film Bone Tomahawk. Did you get to see Anna Lily Amarpour's The Bad Batch that came out no, earlier this year? I didn't. That's also a cannibal story. And in some ways, I could see like these... I mean, they're totally different films, but I could see these similarities in the cannibals. You know, like they're they don't they lack humanity. Mm-hmm. They're they're off in someplace else, and they're just like these brutal, terrible creatures. But I I feel like cannibalism is coming back in style, like in film. Yeah, it kind of is because it is kind of our most. And that's there's so many nods to it in the movie too. Of like. Uh, um, what? Matthew Fox's character, Bruder, right? Yeah, um, he. 
is super racist. Uh, he's not a good guy. He kills uh, he kills a couple of random guys who walk up to their camp. So it's like, you know, it's always that thing of like, well, how brutal are we really? Are we that different? And the fact that uh, when Patrick Wilson's character is digging the whistle out of the guy's throat, he's like, oh, these guys are disgusting. It's like, well, look what you're doing. Yes. You're digging a bone whistle out of a guy's throat right now. And you're saying that they're disgusting. Yes. Yeah, also, they are disgusting. Yeah. No, they're totally disgusting. But yeah, I think as we are kind of more... I think cannibalism always speaks to what disgusts us about ourselves the most. Uh, and I, I think as we are growing more disgusted with ourselves as a people, we're going to maybe see more cannibals. I I would absolutely think that that's, <laughs> that's totally possible. I mean, because <laughs> we're pretty disgusted with ourselves now. And I don't think it's going to get much better. I think the next four to eight years oh, at the God. very least are Three, be... three and a half to eight, right? <laughs> sorry, sorry. Please, <laughs> yeah, give, give me that. Give me that. Who knows? <laughs> Um, I, okay, so this is, we're calling this a Western. Um, one of the things that I thought was so fascinating about this, um, is that the cast is so good and this is a debut director. Mm -hmm. Um, and everyone who was involved, all these actors, they said that the big selling point for getting involved was the script because they had read what S. Craig Zoller had said or had written and they could just immediately visualize the story. Apparently he has a very um, sparse uh, writing quality. Really? You know, it's very, oh, I'd love to read the script. Uh, yeah, yeah. I tried to find a couple of pages of it and I'm. I've, it's mostly confirmed. You know, it's very um, uh, pointed, very huh. um, specific, but very sparse. You huh. know? You're not... And he's a novelist too before. Yes. Uh, this guy, I mean, let's look at his background because this guy is like everything. I don't know. He like maybe couldn't figure out what he wanted to do. He um, he worked as a cinematographer as well, okay. which you might be able to tell just from how beautiful the yeah. film is. But he published several crime and Western novels. He writes music and he worked in theater as well. Wow. And I can always tell when a writer has worked in the theater because you really you hone your craft. You know, it's there's a it's a really kind of a finished quality That's to some of those. But, you know, I think about this person who's like maybe, um, uh, you know, a renaissance man of sorts. And you start maybe understanding why, for instance, the production design is so good, mm -hmm. why these special effects are so good, because he may have a uh, an understanding of how all of these things work. Yeah. And it's easier to communicate with the people on your crew. Well, that's true. If you, you know, if you are also an artist yourself, you that's know, if you know how to make these things. And it's true that so often a movie that would have the violence that you see, which I totally enjoy in the last half hour of the movie, that that the person who makes that movie is not always going to be focused on character development or dialogue. And the person who makes a movie who's very focused on character development and dialogue is not going to know how to really make a good gory scene. So it's just kind of lovely that all these things came together in one movie. Yeah. You know, if we're if we're talking about like the writing in, in these lines, I mean, I think that we should talk about Richard Jenkins characters oh, lines um, specifically. You just fall in love. And by the way, it took me a minute to know it was Richard Jenkins, who I love as an actor. Yeah. But uh Took me a minute to really recognize him. He didn't feel like the kind of guy he normally plays, although he plays all kinds of guys. But such such a lovable human being, such a wonderful man. I okay. So I'm going to identify like the two big ones that I love, mm -hmm. right? Because there's the one where they're around the campfire and they're talking about um, like he, they're all trying to sleep, and he brings up. Um, the fact that he doesn't read in the bathtub because yes. he keeps dropping his book in Pages the bathtub. Pages get wet. It's really hard. Pages get wet. And he yes. said, that's about the only place I'm happy. I think it's something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But he just gets so boring looking at your toes. Yeah. Oh, God. And, I mean, I'm guessing what the other one is. 
Flea Circus. It's the Flea Circus. I I tear up even thinking about him, like, his performance about, like, the Flea Circus. Sanderson's. I don't know what your opinion is, but uh, my wife said it was all a trick. Even when those brothers give us those magnifying glasses and we we saw those fleas pull that little stagecoach right into the depot or or roll uh, those cannons, those tiny little cannons onto the battlefield. She said, those fleas are dead. They're just glued to some mechanical contraption, you know, that uh, that moves on its own like a a timepiece or a a wind-up. Still, I thought it was real. And I told her, I said, don't talk so loud. The performers will hear you. Because I don't know what kind of hearing fleas have. Or if they can sense kindness in the voice the way a dog can. And my favorite, and I don't know, I don't think I noticed it the first time I saw the movie when I rewatched it. I don't know that I noticed uh, Patrick Wilson's wife, like, winking at Kurt Russell. Uh, and then when I noticed that, my heart fell open. Uh, she's like, yeah, those are real. Those are those ones are real. That's fine. And he's like, I knew it. I knew it. I could feel that they were authentic. And then she just tips a little wink at Kurt Russell. And I, it's just, like, such a joy. Like, he's such a joy, even in that moment, that little, the hanging on to the little bit of hope that he has. It's like... And you know he misses his wife. And then the, oh, God, then I just thought of the line where Kurt Russell's like, he's like, say goodbye to my wife for me. I'll say hello to yours. It's so fucking good. I know. (laughs) I know. This is the most violent movie I've seen in a long time. And I'm just tearing up thinking about it. (laughs) I do have a certain weakness for movies where, like, that very traditionally male quality of, like, loyalty and honor and being a good man and justice Mm -hmm. and truth. Like, I get... I get uh, emotional when I see movies about men who have that worldview and it just gets torn asunder in the most in, in fantastic of ways. Because yeah. I feel for those guys. I feel for it when you when your worldview is challenged that hardcore and you just want to be a good person and do the right thing. That's a really that's something we can all relate to, even if we're not that guy. And yeah. it's uh, it's such a thing, a lovely thing to watch both Kurt Russell and Richard Jenkins character go through. It's amazing. You know, it is. It's a really interesting look at at men. Yeah. And there are certain movies, you know, one of the questions that I was going to bring up was, um, you know, does it bother you when a film, something like this, has a cast almost entirely ensemble of men? Um, No. And it doesn't for me. No, not either. I just want good characters. Absolutely. That that surprise me and are unique and are specific. Uh, and these guys, absolutely, all of them are kind of, ha- you know, dealing with their own, what their manhood means to them and what it means when it's like, it's all kind of torn asunder. Other than Matthew Fox, all of them have like, are kind of uh, challenged in what their manhood means to them. Yeah. Uh, Matthew Fox just wants to kill people. He's and like, he's, no, I know. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I really relate it. Patrick Wilson specifically, when he goes and is changing his dressing away from everyone and is like trying to hide how bad his yeah. leg is. Yeah, he's like, uh, the sheriff's like, is it infected? And he's like, no, yeah. no. You know. I really related to that because I, as a person who is, you know, from our movie, there were scenes that were cut that we wrote that were cut of Emily trying to hide how sick she is from the people around her. That was kind of more of a storyline that just didn't end up working. But it is such a thing of like, 
wanting to appear strong enough to handle the world Mm -hmm. and not. And for me, being physically vulnerable is way more vulnerable. I can sit and talk about my feelings all day long, but physical vulnerability is really, really hard for me. And so I kind of really related to Patrick Wilson's character. Like, that's exactly what I would have done. I would have insisted on going. I would have been in terrible pain the whole time. I would have hidden it from everyone. And it probably would have killed me. Uh, so yeah. I really kind of, I, I related to, even though that maybe feels like a very male thing, that's exactly what I would have done. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I would probably be the exact same way. Yeah. Well, it's funny. This movie, um, everyone was quoting them that you can't make it for less than five to ten million. And it was kept getting pushed and pushed back. Hmm. And they weren't sure if they were going to do it. But the weirdest thing happened. Um, So the um, Zoller's manager and also his producer um, for this movie, um, Dallas Sonnier, I believe. Sonnier? I can't remember how to pronounce it. he said that his both his mother and his father were murdered within two years of one another while he was also become a par- becoming a parent for the murdered? first time. Murdered? Both yes. parents were murdered? Yes. And that that fueled his need to want to focus on this movie and get it made. Because wow. he wanted to help fulfill um, Zoller's dream, but he also believed in this movie. So he, against his better judgment, went and took out a personal loan. To finance this film, oh, wow. and they got they got some extras from some foreign investors that they don't mention. Because I'm like, oh, maybe I don't know who these people are. <laughs> we don't want to know. But but uh, Dallas funded most of it, and when I read that, I got a different look at it as being kind of a project born from grief and also yeah. violence. You know, absolutely. Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> That, and then it's like, and I also love that like they managed to get Kurt Russell and Richard Dinkett, all these amazing actors, yes, and paid them nothing. You know what I mean? Like they could not have paid them very much at all. No. And it was I, when I read it, it was like a twenty-one day shoot, which is brutal. But you know, let's talk about the big sick. How many days did you guys have? Uh, twenty-six. We had twenty-six days. Not much more. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> And I mean, and you have a you had a fairly large cast too. It's a pretty large cast. Uh, a lot of kind of rearranging because a lot of uh, people working. You know, like I, I don't know that uh, obviously Kumail's parents and Emily's parents never have a scene together. There's one scene that we cut from the movie that Kumail's dad and Kumail are talking, and Emily's uh, mother walks by, and so that was the only scene I remember where they were all in it together. And yeah. I was like, wow. Uh, and yeah, we cut that. Um, yeah, and we we shot in hospitals, working hospitals, many of the days, and there were two days that we uh, got our locations taken from us because the hospital had us in their. Um, spare ER area and they had too many ER patients and so we could not use that location for shooting that night so the there's a gift shop scene that they were like listen we're sorry we had to take this away from you and we're like that's okay you have to save lives but here you can have the (laughs) gift shop like for the night if you want it yeah so we have a scene of Kumail going and getting the giraffe from the gift shop that's just because we got a gift shop for half a day and didn't have anything else to film Oh, shit. Yeah. For real? <laughs> yeah. It seemed like it was a big part of the movie or something. I know. And that's what's amazing is like, you know, when you look back later, you're like, how could we have made this movie without him walking that giraffe across that like hallway? What we did know is that this there's that, you know, there's a skyway that he kind of walks across with a giraffe to get to Emily's room. Yes. What we did know is we wanted to use the skyway for something. Um, and so that it all just kind of worked perfectly together. But Showalter literally saw the giraffe and was like, that's he needs like a huge obnoxious thing that he's going to get her. Yeah. It's amazing. And we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Switchblade Sisters. 
How's it going, everyone? I'm Oliver Wang. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. We have a brand new show on the Maximum Fun Network that we'd love to share with you. It's called Heat Rocks. Morgan, we should probably explain what a heat rock is. It is a banger, a fire track, true fire. Right. Dope album. Each episode, we will bring on a special guest to join us to talk about one of their heat rocks. It might be a musician. A writer. Maybe a scholar. I mean, I would have been happy to just talk to you about your heat rocks, but this is a different show. Yeah. I think people might enjoy hearing maybe the guests instead. To do that, you'll have to go to MaximumFun.org. So if you want to talk about hot music, you should check us out. Heat Rocks. Welcome back. You're listening to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm talking to Emily Gordon about Bone Tomahawk. Let's talk about your background and Zoller's background in writing being different and how that might inform how you do things differently. Because hmm. I do wonder, I'm looking at, you know, the writing and I'm, I'll bring up the flea thing again, like the flea story. To me, that comes off as almost like a Carson McCullers poetic kind of novelistic I felt like novelistic. Yes, absolutely. Right? Yeah. And so I can see these flourishes where I, I understand that the way that he writes is probably different from the way that a lot of filmmakers who hmm. only do screenwriting write. Yeah. And so I'm wondering for you, you know, you do have a psychology background. Mm-hmm. You know, do you find yourself ever going into kind of uh, more of the psychology of oh. characters? or How, All the time. <laughs> does, well, does your process, is it different from Kumail's or is it? Um, I don't know if it's different. Kumail and I... Who knows if it's different than Kumail? I know that it can. My process is a bit different than some of the other writers I met who are kind of studied writing and came up in like theater studies or you know dramatic film studies sure. majors. Uh, I always think of characters. I always try to think of what those characters, each character I'm writing, would talk to their therapist about. It's a little weird thing I do, and that doesn't mean what their problems are. It's what they think their problems are versus what your, their actual problems are. Yeah. And I want to know. I have to be able to answer for myself what every single character would talk to their therapist about, or else I don't really know what I'm doing yet. And I have to keep digging and keep digging. And all this stuff is stuff that I imagine other screenwriters do. But coming from a background where that was my only job was to focus on those feelings, to focus on people's relationships, and how if you have a family of four that's like maybe 16 I don't know math that well uh, different versions of relationships between each person and then triangulated with that third person and what does that mean when the whole family's together what yeah. roles do they all play that stuff fascinates me and fascinated me as a family therapist and it fascinates me now when I'm kind of building characters and building scenes yeah like how would this scene be different if this person just wasn't in it because it's not just what they're saying to each other it's how do they actually what are their relationships and what are those relationships how do they inform how they talk would you feel more free if this person wasn't here would you feel more angry if this person was here uh, and so all that stuff kind of helps me when I'm writing. So let's say we're talking about characters who aren't, you know, when we say actualized or something, like they're not aware of their feelings or something. Um, the one person in Bone Tomahawk who is constantly aware of her fucking feelings is Samantha. And that might be one of the reasons why I love her. Yeah. So intensely. Because yeah. like we said, there aren't many female characters in this and that's fine. But there's something about her that balances everyone else. Yes. Um, she tells her husband, don't do this thing. And then it's just like, you did this thing and I told you that you, this was going to happen. Yep. And like, that's your problem. You didn't listen to me. And also like, what's so wrong about being home with me? Yeah. For such a long time. <laughs> you know, like there's no like passive aggression with her. No. And it's there's just... also no like a fainting violet. Like, oh, things are difficult for me. Like, no, she's just... She's just a lady who's just dealing with stuff just like everybody else. She watched a dude get eaten alive and still has the 
like this peace of mind, the sense of mind to like help another man through his own kind of yeah. Uh, sorrow. Yeah. And but she's also I love oh, one of my favorite parts. She says, you're idiots. You're all being idiots. You yeah. know, like she just yells at them like mm-hmm. you're like you're just so fucking dumb. This is why frontier life is so difficult. Not because of the Indians or the elements, but because of the idiots. I'm sorry, ma'am. We're sorry. You're idiots. She's very similar to the the male characters in that she speaks plain, which is I love that expression anyway. You speak plain. Um, she speaks plainly, and she's just kind of very direct and kind of no nonsense, but not in like. Not in a way that we often see female characters when they're no nonsense. Yeah. Uh, and it's really, really kind of refreshing. And her hair still looks great after she's been in that prison for so many days, by the way. Yeah, for sure. That petticoat thing mine she's wearing. Too. Yeah, mine too. Um, I, I did want to cover uh, locations mm-hmm. and a little bit more because you did talk about like the hospital and stuff. Where did you guys shoot? New York. You did shoot in New mm-hmm. York? Um, New York for Chicago. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Is that weird trying to recreate this place? That isn't that place? Not so much, because so much of the locations were just inside people's homes and apartments. And that kind of, to me, I lived in Chicago for years, so the dark night is always Chicago to me. Because when you see the buildings, the apartment buildings in Chicago, they're very specific brick. And I always can tell when I see a, like the outside of a building that's Chicago. So watching yeah. our movie, I'm like, I know it's not Chicago. Like, I can tell. It feels yeah. like New York. It feels yeah. like Brooklyn to me. But you got to do what you got to do. So we, you know, just did our best to have most of the shots are like inside people's apartments and the inside apartments always kind of look similar. We did. We shot in Crown Heights, Brooklyn uh, for Emily's apartment and Kamel's apartment uh, was in Williamsburg. And uh, we made it look really crappy. It actually looked quite nice. And it was a very crappy. We made it look very terrible. And then for Kamel's parents' house, we shot at a home in like Staten Island, I think. I was maybe say, Long that's Island. not in New York. Yeah. That's- yeah. It's There's a lovely no tree-lined street, and the entire neighborhood was very excited that a movie was being shot there. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I always think it's really funny that m- most movies don't get to be shot where they're set. Yeah, and you would, we kind of assumed that Chicago would be cheaper to shoot it, and these are not decisions we make, but that it would be cheaper or better for whatever reason to shoot than New York. But we were happy. We lived in New York after we lived in Chicago in real life, so it was nice to kind of go back to New York to shoot there. But, like, you know, the we shot in the middle of the summer, and when you're shooting in an apartment, you have to turn all the air conditioning off. Yes. And it was so terribly stifling in those apartments. And poor Zoe and Kumail had to wear winter coats and, like, scarves and hats and then do makeout scenes in, like, 90-degree weather while wearing coats. Like, I can't... It's hard to be an actor, you guys. I mean, it's it's a difficult job. <laughs> it is It is hard. And you look at some of, like, the behind-the-scenes stuff of Bone Tomahawk, too, and, you know, they... Like I said, they filmed just outside of Los Angeles, and it was, like, 100 degrees yeah, through miserable. the whole shoot. And there's nothing you can do. No. Yeah. And, you know, they're they're wearing, like, these, like, multiple-piece suits yeah. and shit, pants. Matthew Fox is specifically, I was like, oh, he's got to be sweating so hard in that right? thing. Ugh. Oh, it's, yeah, that's got to be gross. So but, we're, we're lucky. Kumail specifically does not sweat as a human being, and I think that helps. Uh, 
Isn't it weird? Is he okay? <laughs> I worry sometimes as his wife. Uh, no, he never sweats unless he's eating spicy food. He just literally does not sweat. Wow. It is such a bizarre, which I love because we'll like we'll both work out and then he'll be like, let's go to lunch. And I'm like, I look disgusting and need to take a shower. And he's like sparkling and yeah. beautiful. Um, so we were lucky in that sense because he has to wear coats so much in that movie when it's like 95 degrees out. Um, it's, yeah, it's a tough thing. It's a tough thing to shoot in the summertime when it's wintertime. <laughs> um, one of the last things I want to get to is the fact that you told me that you have a flea circus story. <laughs> I actually was like, I'll make one up if you need me to. I was, uh, I was very into flea circuses and I was very into, uh, I was into ant farms and thought that ants could like, I thought I could train them. Uh, to say that I thought I could communicate with them is probably the most accurate. I thought that right. I could like somehow talk them into doing stuff for me. Uh, I grew up in the country and I didn't have a lot to play with. Sure. So it was like animals and insects were my friends. So I don't actually have a specifically circus story, but I do. I would catch ants and put them into uh, little boxes with like little things like toys and stuff for them because I thought I, I could get them to play. But they were just very traumatized and wanted out immediately. I probably murdered f- whole families. Oh, my God. Talk about brutal violence. You're being primed for it. I never wanted to hurt them, but I probably did hurt a lot of insects, yeah. You know, I didn't ask you. You said that Westerns aren't a genre that you're into. Are you into, like, violence or horror or... Yes. I love horror movies. I love violent... I mean, I love violent movies, love sci-fi, love all that stuff. Just not into Westerns. Just not a jam. Maybe my dad was watching a lot of them growing up, and I kind of associate them with, like... Oh, Dad, why can't we watch what I want to watch? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah, love horror movies. Yeah. I mean, and, and violence is something that you're you're usually, I mean, have you thought about writing something in, in that vein? Or? I have thought about, because I do, it's interesting having, being a person that has a chronic illness, uh, which is in, the, it's so funny, because these are all things I, <laughs> before the movie came out, I'd be like, I have a chronic illness. Give me 20 minutes. Let me explain to you what happened. And then we can go back to the story. So having a chronic illness, there's so much of your body that feels like, it's up to the whims of, like, fate. Mm-hmm. So much of it feels out of your control. So I think part of me thinks it would be interesting to write a horror movie kind of about having chronic illness. Um, something kind of body horror, something along those lines. But I'm not quite there yet. Um, but it, I think it'd be interesting. And any kind of horror movie I would want to do is probably something more... It's it's those are usually the things I like to watch more than I like to imagine. I like to be shocked at what I'm going to be shown mm-hmm. more so than I'm like, oh, that's a great image. I got to put that in something. Um, so yeah, it's something I thought about, but I haven't I haven't uh, wet my whistle with it yet. Yeah, the act of writing violence is very different. Yeah, it gets you into a very different mindset. I'm I have to wonder, you know, like what is Zoller thinking when he right when he comes up with. The bisections. Are you grossed out by yourself, and then be like, "Hell yeah!" Yeah, I love watching that stuff. Even when it grosses me out, I'm I'm so like, uh, I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated that it could be that someone could come up with this and kind of dream up a way for it to look this real. I'm always like amazed by it, but it's not where my brain goes automatically. Yeah, yeah. Still, man, I'm I'm like this is this is one of those movies I will think about. Yeah. For a really long time. I'm so happy that you selected it and brought it back into my head. Right? Not even that long ago. No, yeah. no. It came out in 2015. Yeah. You know, it, and it's, uh, well, a lot has happened since 2015. And many 2015, things have happened. So, so maybe that's why my brain is a little bit uh, mushy <laughs> on that. But um, such a fantastic movie. Everyone should watch it. And yes, stick through the last 
20 to 40 minutes yeah, the, of it. The first 90 minutes, just like a lovely indie movie drama <laughs> with some beautiful. foreboding violence. And then get ready. Yes, get exactly. ready. <laughs> and also go out and see The Big Sick, which I believe is on iTunes. And it's on iTunes, streaming, DVD, all this. All the, I don't all think it's things. on VHS, but I would love it if it was on VHS. No, support your local video store, too, if you've got yeah. one. <laughs> um, so thank you so much, Emily. It was awesome to have you on. Thank you for having me. I do have one final question for you. Okay. So our show is called Switchblade Sisters, which is named after the 1975 film by Jack Hill, if you maybe didn't know. The film follows this gang of women who are all tough, mean, and don't take shit from anybody, and each of them has a completely unique personality. So I ask each guest on the show, which Switchblade sister are you today? Okay. Are you Lace, tough as nails but vulnerable to the whims of men? Maggie, fearless leader who cuts through the bullshit? Patch, merciless but faithful to her female friends. Muff, a Maoist who's prepared for disaster and who's also sick of your shit. Donut, sweet but easily manipulated and really likes to eat. Or Bunny, the calm middle manager known for talking sense into hotheads. So which switchblade sister are you today? I would like to say that I'm Muff, but I'm probably, I'm going to go Patch. (laughs) Yeah! I just, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think there's an alternate side. I'm very, I tend to be very calm and level-headed, uh, but there's a side of me that would love to just be able to go ape shit at any point in time. So I'm gonna go patch. Uh, it's also the best name. <laughs> it is, and she wears a patch, there an eye go. patch, and she's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> I lost my eye for this gang. Remember, we used to be tough. Thanks for listening to Switchblade Sisters. Next week, we are going to be talking with Karin Kusama. She's directed the movies Girl Fight, Jennifer's Body, and the most recent, The Invitation. And we'll be discussing the Catherine Bigelow vampire classic, Near Dark. Thank you to all the listeners out there. Uh, Thank you to producer um, Casey O'Brien and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. Thanks. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.